Introducing ADT Self Setup, featuring everything from motion sensors to Google Nest Cams. It can be easily installed at your convenience and adapts as your needs change. You can add more products at any time and your system easily moves wherever life takes you. Plus, when every second counts, you can trust ADT's 24-7 professional monitoring. When the most trusted name in home security adds the intelligence of Google, you've got a home with no worries. Go to ADT.com today or call 1-800-ADT-ASAP. There are certain jobs that get easier when the economy gets worse, like military recruitment. During the economic crash in 2008, recruiting surged. With few jobs out there, people were lining up to join. This former Army recruiter told us he basically had to dodge people at his office when he went to lunch. We used to joke in the office that you would see somebody walking towards the building and you're like, okay, oh, we got to hide behind the desk. Of course, a lot has changed since then. Senate Republicans are questioning the United States' top military official over what they claim is a, quote, woke military agenda. These Gen Z kids are just like, why would I go get shot in the Middle East when I can get shot in the comfort of my middle school? Tonight, the U.S. Army is releasing a scathing report saying leaders at Fort Hood in Texas ignored complaints of sexual harassment from Vanessa Guillen, the specialist who disappeared last April and was killed by a fellow soldier. Most of the veterans I know support ending the war. They do think that 20 years has been too long. Last year, the Army missed its recruitment goal. It had 65,000 spots to fill and came up 10,000 short of that target. The obstacles to changing those numbers reflect, let's call it a culture clash. There are more high schoolers interested in college, more single parents, more people who know the military's problem with sexual assault, more who watch the U.S. spend 20 years in wars that it could not win, and fewer who would qualify even if they wanted to join, and more who are more likely to come across social media posts from people who have enlisted. Hey, if you could say one thing to a recruiter, what would it be? Why the f*** did you lie to me? Today, what the Army's low recruitment numbers say about our shifting culture. Why is it so hard to recruit? How's the Pentagon responding? And how are the voices of service members on social media shifting the balance? I'm Audie Cornish, and this is The Assignment. So that recruiter we mentioned earlier, the one who was being bombarded by potential recruits before his lunch break, his name is Daniel. Now, Daniel's story starts off like a lot of kids. He had plans to leave his small town in the South and go to college. But like many, paying for it was an issue. My family wasn't in a financial place where they could afford to pay for it. So it was either take on the debt or go to the military. The idea of joining the military wasn't totally alien to him. His dad was in the Navy. Almost every male member of his family had served in one branch or the other. But even as a 17-year-old, he had a lot of questions. One of the questions I do remember asking is, will I get deployed? Will I ever go to see combat? And he straight up tells me, he's like, well, oh, no, you're, you're going to work in supply. You'll be in a little warehouse somewhere with your feet kicked up on a desk, you know, ordering parts. You know, you won't ever see the front line of combat. It was 1998. Things were relatively peaceful. Then 9-11 happened. And in fact, I ended up deploying. I'd done three rotations to Iraq before I became a recruiter. Daniel ended up serving 24 years in the Army. He's now since retired. And we're using his first name only because he's worried about getting into trouble for sharing his experiences with us. 
And we wanted his unfiltered perspective on what he saw during his time as a recruiter in the thick of the U.S. being in Iraq and Afghanistan. One of the first things a lot of them would say is, no, I don't want to go to combat and get killed. And, you know, and I'm coming back like, well, I've been like four times now and I'm still here. And it's like, well, yeah, but we're just we're at war and I don't want to go to war. And I think that's one of the problems they're having now is the primary demographic, you know, 17 to 24 year old is the post 9-11 generation. And the country's been at war since they were born and this is all they know. So that's not a back of mind consideration for them. When you factor in the ongoing school shootings in this nation and the repetitive active shooter drills, you know, these kids are getting exposed to this, some of the similar training that I would get in dealing with enemy combatives. They're getting that in school on a regular basis. And by the time they're of recruiting age, it's like, hey, do you actually want to go do this for a living now? Is this something you actually heard from potential recruits or something you've come to understand on your own? This is just one I've kind of come to understand. And, you know, I've heard my friends and neighbors who have kids now, they're like, you know, this is basically like combat light. So what you're saying is it's also the culture that comes with that, meaning the drills, the explanations, the repetitiveness of the event itself. Like it's a a telling each time of this is what it's like to be harmed by an assault style weapon or, quote unquote, a military style weapon. Yes. And you're drilling this into young children. And I mean, you can only imagine what this is doing to their psychological effects. And the younger generation isn't as opposed to seeking mental health care as some of the older generations are. And, you know, and as a result, mental health care is one of the disqualifiers for the military. So we we keep ingraining this, oh, we're going to do active shooter drills. Now these children are going to get, you know, mental health care to deal with that and process what they're feeling about that. And then they come and sit in front of you and have to admit that they've been to therapy or taking some kind of medication and you have to say to them what? That unfortunately you're disqualified. And that's one of the big kickers I think the military is dealing with right now. Because again, you know, past history of seeking uh, mental health care. In some cases, that will disqualify you. And it's entirely up to the doctor at the military enlistment processing center, whether or not your processing continues. And And that could be a range of things. I mean, it could be everything from, you know, you said you were suicidal. You know, that's a big one. Obviously, that one's going to be hard to overcome. You know, if you were on ADHD medicine, if you'd been to therapy because, you know, were stressed out in college and you went to, you know, talk to a therapist about it, you know, that's out there. Similarly, with the criminal history, what's the range there? Are there things that would surprise people? Prime example, I had an older gentleman. He was 38. Again, the recruiting age had been lifted to 42. Um, He had went to seminary school. He was a pastor at the local church. He wanted to join as a chaplain. But then we get to talking and he said, oh, you know, the only thing he'd ever had when he was 15 years old, he had a marijuana possession charge. And that was the thing that turned his life around and made him decide, I'm going to go be a pastor. I'm going to go to seminary. I want to get my life right. And, you know, and, and he's been clean ever since. But because of that one charge at the time, he was disqualified. We should be clear. Recruiters are often going for people who are seniors in high school, right? Right at that cusp of decision making, even as 
the number of people who go on to college, right, um, has gotten higher and higher over the years. So in the 70s, you only have 40 percent, 46 percent of students heading off to college. But by 2016, that number is 70 percent. So you're trying to compete for a dwindling pool of people who might make another choice. And then there's a couple things that we hear about um, anecdotally. Republicans in Congress are fairly preoccupied with the idea that the military leadership is creating a problem or challenges because it's, quote unquote, too woke or too focused on identity issues. Yeah. And that's one I have always laughed about because I, I came in prior under the don't ask, don't tell policy, which, you know, prevented gay and lesbian soldiers from serving. And I know, you know, when it reached around, was it 2010, I believe, when they started talking about repealing that, they sent out countless surveys to all of us who were still active, you know, actively serving, asking, you know, would this detract from morale? Would it hurt retention? Would it hurt recruiting? And like overwhelmingly 90-something percent of the people who responded said, we don't care. Because for those of us who are actively serving, you realize when you're downrange in a combat zone and they, you're engaged with the enemy, you're not concerned with the sexual orientation, the gender, the race, the religion, or anything else of the person next to you. Your only concern is, do they have my back? Who was your competition? I mean, today I think recruiters would be competing with Amazon, right? Or yeah. any number of other jobs that pay quite well. It's kind of the trade-off for the military when there is a strong economy, you know, and the job market is really productive right now. There's a lot more competition out there. And, you know, people are looking at, okay, what can Amazon offer me versus what the Army can offer me? And I think that's where social media is really hurting the military right now. And I don't say it's social media itself. It's that the military cannot control the message that's getting out through social media. Which message? You know, Coming up in my time, you know, they would tell us, well, suck it up. And you couldn't really tell too many people about it. But service members today can go go into their barracks room and take a TikTok video or post pictures on Facebook and Instagram and say, this is how they have me living. And these videos, they get widespread. And so you have these potential applicants, you know, and, you know, the younger generation are all over social media and they live on it. Right. Like I used to always tell people when I would, you know, make an appointment with them, I want you to go do your research, go Google, go get on social media, you know, look up the jobs you're thinking about doing, get an idea, talk to people on these social media groups that are working in those jobs. Try to educate yourself so that when you come to me, you know what questions to ask and you would also know or be more likely to know if I'm kind of BSing you. Maybe that's another reason why numbers are down, right? They have done the research. Yeah. And, and I think that could be some of it. And that's also why I didn't switch over and become a permanent recruiter, because I felt like it was too much about the numbers game. And for me, I, I refuse to compromise my integrity on that. I think the military, if they really want to increase their applicant pool, have to kind of mirror what society's standards are. you got to evolve with society. If you continue to dismiss the issues that your personnel who are currently serving have... That's going to get out. And the younger, the, your potential applicants are going to say, I don't want to be part of that. And those who are currently dealing with it are going to be spreading the word and saying, 
don't join because this is what you'll deal with. So no amount of cool videos or video games or your own TikToks you think can counter the testimony of people who are facing these issues that aren't being addressed. To me, I look at social media, it's basically the Google and Yelp reviews for the military. You know, the, the military can construct and spend, you know, all the money it wants to on these fancy videos and advertisements and sponsoring race cars or what have you. But the actual consumer who is living and breathing and experiencing this on a daily basis is going to tell the truth about it. After the break, we're going to hear from the Army and what they have planned to get Americans interested in joining again. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. And automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology. Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. That's the sound of switching your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling. Harness the best converting checkout and same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Stop leaving sales on the table. Discover why millions trust Shopify to build, grow, and run their business. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech23. Welcome back. I'm Audie Cornish, and this is The Assignment. The Army is trying to address low recruitment. They created the Future Soldier Prep Course to help recruits meet body fat and academic requirements. They've loosened tattoo restrictions and issued a new 12-week parental leave program. And yeah, they're on social media. We spoke to one of their present-day recruiters, Sergeant First Class Amanda Cornelia. So um, I post posts and then I post stories. So typically people know clearly that I'm an Army recruiter. So if they, you know, look at my story more than once, then I know, hey, they might have some interest there. So I'll send them a little DM of our benefits and information and just give them my number and say, hey, if you would like to learn more, reach out to me at this number. And that definitely works. But it's an uphill battle considering what Daniel told us about social media. I mean, it's hard to counter viral content like this recent meme what would you tell your recruiter? Hey, word. Word, 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 word. Yeah. If you could say one thing to your recruiter, what would it be? Some f***ing bullshit. <laughs> hey. uh-huh. If you could tell one thing to your recruiter, what would it be? You. If you could say one thing to your recruiter, what would it be? I hope he dies. So how's the Army thinking about this? We went to the top. Secretary of the Army, Christine Warmoth. I'm basically in charge of overseeing almost a million people, a budget of about $185 billion a year. And it's my job to advocate for our soldiers and and our families. When I've been reading in from critics who are sort of saying the Army has a problem or that there is a problem with recruitment, they point to a couple of things. Some of them are out of your control, and, and some of them are. So a handful, let's talk about, that are within the control and those eligibility requirements. One is 20-something states now have legalized marijuana use in some way. And so the odds of you encountering a potential recruit 
who may have used marijuana, for example, is a lot higher. Is that the kind of thing that the Army is thinking about in this moment? We are thinking about that. And um, a young person could have smoked marijuana in the past. That in and of itself is not disqualifying. What is disqualifying is if when you come to our medical station and you kind of, you know, go through the medical test, you actually have marijuana in your system. But you can see how more likely that is now in the age of edibles, vaping. I mean, we got a a letter from a teacher talking about this in their middle school. So it it feels like the Army's going to encounter this. The challenge we have, Audie, is that we can't have active duty soldiers, you know, actively smoking pot. It's not legal at the federal level. And as of right now, our view is is that's not something that we want to encourage in our active duty soldiers. One of the reasons why I'm bringing it up is because it's an example of demographic shift and change in social mores, right? That the country is going one way, but that may not align with, as you said, all of these reasons um, why the army isn't going in that direction. Another one is the sheer volume of people who are now single parents, right? And if you enlist, you have to, if I understand this correctly, give up guardianship of your child, at least in that initial enlistment. And there have been some advocates who say, look, maybe after a certain amount, maybe it should be a shorter window of time that that happens. But again, it looks like another potential pool of people that are rendered ineligible because through policy. Well, we are trying to look into things like that because I think we do want to sort of make adjustments where we can. And right now, basically, if you're a single parent, you only have to basically give up guardianship during the period of basic training, which is 22 weeks. But you can hear as a parent, like I'm a parent, you hear give up anything (laughs) related to your kid and you're just like, what? Why do I have to do that? That's not going to work for me. Yeah, I think it's a, it is a challenge. And we're trying to, you know, we have made changes. For example, it used to be if you were, you know, at West Point and you were a parent, you weren't allowed to be at the military academy. We have changed that rule. Soldiers who are single parents have to have something called a family care plan. And we do a lot to support people in developing those family care plans. So we are trying, I think, to sort of shift the way we do business to be more accommodating. We basically have a new uh, policy that gives all new parents, moms, dads, birth parents, adoptive parents, 12 weeks of paid parental leave. That's a really big change from the Army. It used to be, you know, Was it a fight to get it? What was it like having that conversation? Well, Congress actually passed a law requiring it. So we didn't spontaneously come up with it. But it did generate, frankly, some consternation inside of the Army. There was a lot of angst around, well, if, you know, dads take three months of leave, like, how are we going to deploy? How are we going to do exercises? How are we going to train? And I think there was some concern in some quarters about that. But I said, look, you know, we've got to be competitive with employers in the private sector. And that's a huge issue for people. And we have to demonstrate that you don't have to choose between the Army and being a parent. But it's a culture shift is it's what I It's a culture hear. shift, and I think it's a very positive one. You know, I was looking through some of the reasons why people join, right? The Army actually looks into it itself and does surveys. The question was, if you were to consider joining the U.S. military, what would be the main reasons? And people talk about pay and money and things like that. When they talk about issues why they would not join, one of the issues that came up 
that surprised me, maybe it shouldn't, was concerns about sexual assault and culture. And while that had is a big news topic, it sounds like it is something that has reached the general population as a concern. How do you even address that? I've heard that concern, too. And I think it's an understandable one. I think the tragic murder of Vanessa Guillen a few years ago was obviously a national news story that I think has stayed in people's minds for a very long time. And there's also just been, you know, I would say a steady stream over, you know, years of stories of people being sexually harassed in the military. Now, of course, sexual harassment is a national problem. It's not exclusive to the military. But we are really working hard to address that. But the reason why I ask is because those issues of perception take a toll. They do. They do. Uh, And perception is reality, you know. So I think what we have to do is just be very straightforward with people about what the Army is trying to do to stamp out that problem. We can't blame the media and say, oh, if you all would just, like, stop writing negative stories, we wouldn't have this problem. I think we have to demonstrate that we are taking real steps to try to solve the problem. And it's hard because, again, it's a national problem. But we are putting a lot more focus on prevention. We are trying to talk to our kids, you know, going into basic training about what kinds of behavior are acceptable and what is not. But do they see that through the actions of the Army, right? Is there a sense that you can talk about prevention a lot, but if there isn't a perception that when something happens, there is swift justice, so to speak, it kind of undoes all that work. Sure. And we are trying to be very clear in that regard as well. We're trying to make, you know, we're trying to get the word out that we are taking steps on the response side as well. For example, We have stood up an office of special trial counsel. So now sexual assault cases are taken out of the chain of command and they are litigated by lawyers who report directly to me. So if you have a situation where there are two soldiers in the same unit and maybe in the old days you worried that the commander liked the perpetrator, the accused, if you will, more than the victim, and then that was going to create unfairness. Now those cases are tried completely separately by trained prosecutors who are specialists in sexual harassment and sexual assault. Um, Now, in terms of the speed of justice, it's always a challenge because you're innocent until proven guilty. You know, we have to investigate these cases and we can't always be fully transparent. But I think, you know, we, we have to sort of strike a balance between trying to keep our soldiers informed, but also allowing due process. So all of this is understandable. It keeps coming back to something that I think I'm trying to get at, which is people's both trust and confidence in serving, right? Uh, what, What draws them in, that recruitment process. And one of the things that has been most striking is where this breaks down. So specifically where it comes to uh, politics, and partisans. So you've seen this like sharp decline, at least according to Gallup, um, among Republicans who express confidence in the U.S. military. So just in the last three years, that confidence number going from 91 percent down to 68 percent. With independence, that number goes from 68 percent to 55 percent. There's been this sharp decline. And how are you thinking about it? Because that is just politics. 
Sure. And, and I, I think, you know, it is challenging when you have a hyper-partisan landscape like we have right now, where you have, frankly, a lot of misinformation out there. Uh, and so... Like what? Well, I mean, I think there are there are sources of information that portray, you know, the Army as having, for example you know, rampant sexual assault, which is not the case at all, or you have sources of information that portray us as spending all of our time on diversity, equity, and inclusion training. And um, Wait, wait, wait. Is that something you've heard? Is that something that is said? Oh, well, I mean, there's absolutely, it's absolutely been said that we spend way too much time on DEI training and that we've lost our focus on warfighting skills and that we need to get back to the basics. You know, again, that is incorrect. We are very focused on the basics. We have, you know, in, in basic training, soldiers spend uh, hundreds of hours on rifle marksmanship, for example, and we do an hour of EEO training. Um, so, so that misinformation is out there. And, you know, people listen to the sources of news that they are inclined to listen to. And so, you know, I think what the Army can do is just try to get the truth out there but absolutely, you know, you know that misinformation is a challenge across the board on a whole number of issues. I mean, there's misinformation about Ukraine. There's misinformation about, you know, the ongoing crisis in Middle East. It's just a reality that, that policymakers have to deal with. We spoke to a former recruiter uh, named Daniel who told us that it feels like the military can't control the messages that are getting out through social media, whether those be TikToks or tweets. He said that it's basically like Google and Yelp reviews, and young people are paying attention because the reviews aren't great. Yeah, well, I'm not a real big fan. You know, I'm a foodie, and I usually don't get my reviews on restaurants from from Yelp, precisely because I don't put a lot of stock in those reviews. But the people you're recruiting do. And I deal with this in the news business, right? Like, I don't get my news necessarily from TikTok, but I am fast competing with journalists in that sphere. And it he he was pointing out that when there are problems— there is now the ability to talk about those problems in a public way that maybe recruiters didn't have to compete with 15, 20 years ago. Yeah, I think that's true. And we're doing a couple of things about that. One, you know, we have been trying to leverage more social media to get our story out there. We have folks who have a lot of followers, for example. I mean, there's a National Guard recruiter on Instagram who's great and uses it very, very effectively. I think we're also trying to be more proactive in the information space, you know, more proactive with the media to talk about stories and respond to events more quickly. If you're not out there, you know, responding to events, the stories are going to get written anyway. You know, just for example, this is a story from November 1st, I think, in the Military Times about the Army having to apologize for sending soldiers last-minute recruitment orders, right, ordering people to go to recruiting school. Um, the the sort of person, the service's chief of staff has apologized for that. But it it sends a message that there's a little bit of a panic about recruiting. Yeah, we're not in a panic. <laughs> um, and... You know, what What recently came to our attention is that we weren't, uh, we didn't have our recruiting workforce, if you will, at 100% manning. So say we have 10,000 recruiters across the Army, 
you want to have all 10,000 out there. What has come to our attention very recently for a variety of reasons is that we didn't have 10,000 recruiters on the street. So what we were trying to do was to fill up that bucket, if you will, so we had all the recruiters that we need. I think much more important than that is a set of decisions that we recently announced to help us be much more effective with recruiting over the long term. We are going to professionalize our recruiters. So the way we've done it for years and years and years is we take NCOs from across the Army, and we don't give them lots of training. Uh, we don't particularly screen them and select them based on, you know, um, criteria that might give us effective recruiters. So, you know, are you outgoing? Are you comfortable talking to people? We're going to start doing that now. We're going to take a best practice from Fortune 500 companies and make our recruiters professional. You know, we will select them very carefully. They will have their own what we call military occupational specialty. So they will become a recruiter and they will recruit year after year after year after year. We will give them training and tools to make them effective at that. Another thing that we need to do is we've been really focused on the high school market for years and years and years. So we need to start kind of broadening out beyond high school. We need to be looking at folks going to community college. We need to be looking at folks who maybe started college but didn't finish. You know, we'll still recruit from high schools, but I think there's a broader pool out there that we can be talking to. That's another thing that we need to be doing. What I hear is a kind of acknowledgement that there have been some cultural changes. And in order to meet your recruiting goal, you might have to address those cultural changes in a different way, that the culture isn't going to conform to what the Army needs. hundred percent. And what I've said is, you know, we have to take charge of our own destiny. We have to change the things that are inside of our control. You know, it is not within the Army's control to solve the obesity crisis in America, for example. You know, um, yeah, we've got some challenges, um, and the Army alone can't fix that. But I am in charge of my recruiting workforce, and I can make changes to make them more effective. Honestly, this looks hard, right? After 9-11, which is when I got out of college, lots of people wanted to join. And now you're fighting a post-Afghanistan withdrawal, a good employment economy, and it just looks harder. It is harder. It is absolutely harder. I won't lie. Um, but I do think there are things inside of our control that we can change that will help us. We have really had the same approach to recruiting for the last 20 years. And we can take a different approach, and we are going to do that. I think that's going to help us considerably. But I do think it's going to remain a tough challenge. So I think, you know, the Army cannot take this for granted. We can't sort of be on autopilot when it comes to recruiting each year. I think we're going to have to really focus on it very purposefully in a way that we have not necessarily for the last 10 years. That was Secretary of the Army, Christine Warmoth. Now, if you liked today's episode, we want you to share it. If you loved it, go ahead and give us five stars or review. It really helps people discover the show. This episode of The Assignment, a production of CNN Audio, was produced by Jennifer Lai and Isoke Samuel. Our producers are Lori Gallaretta, Carla Javier, and Dan Bloom. Matt Martinez is the senior producer of our show. Michael Hammond does mixing and sound design. Dan DeZula is our technical director. Our executive producer is Steve Lichtai. And today, 
I want to offer a special thanks to all the veterans and active service members who spoke to us for this episode. We appreciate you and thank you for your service. I'm Audie Cornish. ADT professionally installs Google Nest products, helping to make your home safe and smart. You can check in on your home and manage your security system from virtually anywhere. And with Nest Cams and Nest Doorbell, you get intelligent alerts on what matters most. Plus, when every second counts, you can trust ADT's 24-7 professional monitoring. When the most trusted name in home security adds the intelligence of Google, you've got a home with no worries. Go to ADT.com today or call 1-800-ADT-ASAP.